Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to God is Gray, the podcast. Although I, as a Christian, believe that God resides in absolute truth, in black and white, we as people are stuck here on planet Earth contending with the gray. In church, gray areas often cause dissension, anger, and even hate. But on this platform, I welcome open dialogue, variety of opinion, and differing belief systems. God is Gray is meant to teach, inform, and simply trade stories with kindness, love, and mutual respect. If you have a story or perspective to share, please reach me, Brenda Marie Davies, at GodIsGrayXO at gmail.com. To support the cause and be a part of our community, donate to patreon.com slash goddessgray. Now, on to the episode. Hi, beautiful, Hi, beautiful people. people. Hello. Um, so yeah, my name is Joanna Luman. I, um, I am a pastor. I have a master's degree in ministry and theology, and my husband and I currently lead a nonprofit that for all intents and purposes is a home church. Uh, but really it is a little bit more than that. It's a place where we are redefining what it means to be a Christian that is dismantling white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism in each one of us and all of us at the same time, collectively and individually. Um, we talk about decolonizing church and theology, decolonizing our faith and taking the conversation about progressive Christianity a little bit further, um, so that we can walk out decolonization inside of our faith and become decolonized Christians ourselves. It's amazing. It's such an important conversation to me because um, I'll just come right out and state the obvious, which is that I am a white girl from suburbia and um, there was not much diversity in my high school and even less diversity in my evangelical church. So um, I hope, and I'm sure that you can uh, promise us as well, that this conversation isn't meant to alienate anyone, but to educate people. I know that a lot of white people get triggered when this sort of topic is brought up, but I really would encourage everyone and pray that you come with open ears and know this is a safe space to learn. And I'll ask the educate or I'll ask the educated, opposite of educated, the ignorant questions on everyone's behalf. And then Joe will hopefully lead us to just more insight and enlightenment onto what this is really all about and why it's so important for us to understand our history as Christians. So when I just first asked you what you'd like to talk about on the podcast, um, I stole a line from Morgan Daisiesel, my friend. She likes asking herself and other people, what lights you up? Because that's a word she got from the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit was like, whatever lights you up is right. It's not a sin. It's not your heart being devious. It's your genuine calling in life. So I asked Joe this and she said, freedom. So Joe, I wanted to know, first of all, you had this beautiful quote on your Instagram that says, you can't control free humans if you have if you have to control what they believe is freedom. So I know what that means, I think, to me, but can you like dive into that statement a little more? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like you, I was all inside of evangelical Christianity. Um, and it I started with a with deconstruction as well, deconstructing my faith. And and as everybody else, it came with a lot of pain, you know, mm -hmm. after experiencing a lot of pain. Um, then I started asking a lot of questions that I hadn't given myself permission to ask because questions inside of evangelical Christianity are not allowed. So I started asking all these questions. I started, and once you pull one card out of the evangelical, you know, um, um, card, what is that? The card like, mountain? Yeah, like the, the card, card pyramid. The card Je pyramid, yeah. Once Jenga you pull board, one card, whatever. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Then it just really falls apart really quickly. 
Um, So I started asking more and more questions and realizing that even though we we talk a lot about freedom inside of Christianity, um, it's a freedom that comes with conditions. It's a freedom that comes with you are free so long as you believe all of these things, so long as you define freedom in this way. But nobody really can define freedom for me, especially if it's within the constraints of somebody else's belief system. Right. That's not freedom at all. It's actually the quite opposite of freedom. And it was, uh, I was sitting in a service in an evangelical church and they were singing songs about slavery, which I found out later, um, you know, this, they, it was gospel music that had been kind of modernized. Um, and they are singing about slavery and how we are not slaves and we are free. And I'm thinking, that's not what this song is about whatsoever. Um, and it, it, you're cheapening what this really means and what it really meant to those who were writing it. Also, we're not free right here. We're not all of us have to fit into perfect boxes. All of us have to look certain way. All of us have to believe the same things. Otherwise, we're not, we don't belong and we're not accepted. Therefore, this, has, this is nothing about freedom. This is all about slavery in, in the same terms that you are defining it. You know, This is about just being shackled to your definitions. So if to be free you have to submit and surrender to certain definitions of freedom. You're not free at all. I am so embarrassed to say that I know exactly what song you're talking about, about being like a free from slavery. And that was always sung in my white evangelical church to mean we're free from the slave of sin. Right. Never considering the people were real literal slaves. And that's what that song is actually about. And the real literal slaves that wrote these songs were fueled themselves by the gospel, by Mm -hmm. Jesus, to walk out of slavery, to do things that were hard and difficult, to to die, to make sure that other people were freed themselves, literally. Right. So the weight of these words for them, I mean, we we have to honor that, you know, when we when we're singing these songs, and that's not what we're singing when we're singing inside of evangelical circles. Wow. That is so eye-opening and devastating to me. And that, that perfectly, I think, starts up our conversation just to give everyone an idea of how much we have been colonized in the church without even realizing it. Never yeah. saw the song that way. It's crazy. Um, so on your website, you have different categories that you like give resources to people of the study and research you've done on specific subjects like deconstruction, decolonization, and LGBTQ faith resources. Mm-hmm. And um, before we started this convo, I was saying I love every resource that you've put out there for deconstruction. So I just want to encourage everybody to check out Joe's Instagram. While I have you here, I did want to just focus on the decolonization aspect of it. So one thing that you had on there is this article from sojo.net, the Sojourner, and um, it was on the doctrine of discovery. Basically, this is the story of when um, a chief was tied to the stake and burned alive um, by Christians that were trying to convert him. And the Franciscan friar that was in charge of his murder um, was talking about how he needs to receive Jesus to go to heaven. And the chief basically said he told them he would prefer to go to hell if heaven was a place that these people were. And there's a striking image on this page um, 
of how just evil and demonic these people look out killing this indigenous person. So that's just something that I would like everybody to go ahead and read as well. But could you speak more to that situation and, and what strikes you about that story? Yeah, so the, the doctrine of discovery is this idea that um, European colonizers, starting with Christopher Columbus, came to America, uh, which wasn't his intention, by the way. He wasn't, he wasn't, that was not his intention. Right. But he stumbles upon America, and then they, he, he, this is what we're told, they discover America. You cannot discover a place that is already there. You cannot discover a place with a ton of people that have their own civilizations that are some of these civilizations, that's a hard word to say. Some of the <laughs> civilizations are, were even more advanced technologically mm. than European civilizations at the time. Like we're talking about the Mayans and the Incas and we're talking about the Aztecs and some of these civilizations had very incredible and detailed, um, for instance, aqueduct systems. And in the, uh, in the meantime, in Europe, there were no aqueduct systems yet. They were throwing their feces out into the streets. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but because of this doctrine of discovery and this idea that Europeans were bringing civilization, they were bringing discovery of America, but now America got to join the world as though it hadn't been there always. Um, this idea was given to the to the colonized people to the indigenous people of the Americas and one of the ways that the colonizers did that was using the church so they brought a lot of missionaries uh, both good and bad like in everything a lot of bad though mm-hmm. because of the their own theology and their own belief that the only way to be saved and to be well and to have a relationship with God is to understand their version of God and their way of understanding God, their way of seeing Jesus and so they start separating children from their parents, because if you can indoctrinate children, then you have them, you know, you have the adult that they become. They tell them they cannot speak their language anymore, cut their hair, because the only appropriate way to be a man is to have short hair, and the girls have to have long hair, and then they tell them to dress the way that was acceptable to the Christian colonizers, um, because nakedness was not appropriate, which makes you also go back to Genesis and realize they were living freer, like Adam and Eve, and then you come and you impose these things on them, saying God doesn't approve of your nakedness when God made us naked and we were free and naked and beautiful and unashamed. And so they impose all of these things on them with the idea that they are saving them. Um, but in reality, this was all about political gain. It was all about hoarding wealth and hoarding power. It was about taking over land for the crown, for the you know Spanish crown, for the British crown. Um, it had nothing to do with saving people. It's just that religion, because of how much fear and shame it can put on people, is a really, really easy way to motivate people to do what you want them to do. And if you travel through <clears throat> the southwestern United States, you find all these missions uh, that were set up here, where people were taken, where people were indoctrinated, where people were uh, stripped or of their of their faith of their um, understanding of God, of their cultures. Um, and, you know, if you, if you let a lie um, continue to be passed down through generations, it becomes truth. Mm-hmm. 
um, it becomes truth to the people that keep repeating the lie anyways. So a lot of indigenous people first are destroyed through this. A lot of indigenous like groups of people, civilizations were destroyed. A lot of languages were gone. Um, and then they start indoctrinating the children and letting all of us know and believe that we ought, we ought to be grateful uh, because European missionaries came and saved us from hell. Um, which is not biblical. It's not true. It's just one way of reading the Bible. And it's a, it's a very, very damaging and horrible way of reading the Bible. And the only purpose that it has is to make people do what you want them to do, uh, to control people and manipulate people. Yeah. I mean, something that's striking me when you're talking is that I just would have to admit that the way things are presented to me in elementary school, for example, when we were celebrating Christopher Columbus Day, there was Mm -hmm. no one, no one had to say you are superior to these people. These people, you know, didn't know how to live or anything. It was just, they were always presented as um, less advanced in need of something, in need of a savior, um, like you said, technologically, and that it was just more sophisticated and enlightened to be wearing clothes, that to be naked and to be on horseback and to be free and to have long hair and all these things and to actually honor animals before you sacrifice them, etc., was less advanced than these superior Europeans that came to help these people. Mm -hmm. And um, we even went on um, trips to, cause I'm from New Jersey. So there are a lot of, um, what do they call it? Reservations locally. And we would go to reservations to have field trips and buy headdresses and make the headdresses out of like, you know, construction paper and everything and go visit these places. And like you said, if a lie is perpetuated long enough, it just becomes truth. And the fact to me that I, as a child was told this with with no concept of the travesty that occurred in that place is mind blowing to me. The fact that the reservation is a place that they were forced to go to because everything else they had was, was stolen, that they were raped, pillaged, murdered. Um, And it just blows my mind too, that there's so much pushback against this. I understand, like even to me, for example, having this conversation does kind of have my heart palpitating a little bit because I want to be sure I'm using the right language and I'm presenting myself in a way that is very open and honest and humble because I know that I'm coming from a place of ignorance and I want that to come across to people. So I just say that to be like, I understand that these conversations are uncomfortable for white people to have, but that doesn't matter at the end of the day. We need to be committed to advancing our understanding and we need to embrace the truth of our history. Our religious history has murdered lots and lots of people from the Spanish Inquisition, you know, all of these situations and colonization is one of the worst tragedies, like you said, because we have raped and pillaged and stolen from people that we are no better than. And if anything, now with the way our planet is being destroyed, the way we have no respect whatsoever for the way we farm animals, etc., we have so much to learn from these indigenous cultures that we're living Absolutely. in the most beautiful, God-honoring, earth-honoring, autonomy honoring sexuality honoring way and if we would just humble ourselves and realize there's no need to get offended when someone calls you out on something you just need to 
throw up your hands and surrender and be like, I'm ready to learn, even if it's uncomfortable, like that is important. So I just want to acknowledge that like, we were all indoctrinated and that's not your fault. But what is your fault is if you choose to stay in that place or you choose to get defensive when people call you out on these truths. Yes. And I mean, I have to be, um, you know, I was indoctrinated and the amount of self-hatred that I carried within without knowing that it was self-hatred because I have indigenous blood um, and indigenous was bad, uh, but I have it. It's, it's within me. It's inside of me. Right. So I had to, I had to unpack all of that, you know, and we all have these biases that we carry and we have to unpack them and we make mistakes. I have biases that I am unpacking that I have to, that I make mistakes and I say things that are inappropriate. Um, you know, with, with ableism, with fat phobia, with all of these different biases that we carry. But what you said is so true. The, the issue is not, do we have biases or not? The, the issue is, what are we going to do when we find out, we, when we find them out specifically? Right. And, and we have to talk about white supremacy and racism and stop looking at it as um, it is those bad people that are white supremacists and racist. White supremacy is the water we've been swimming in Mm -hmm. all of us so we've been taking it in internalizing it becoming it without even realizing so these conversations are indeed uncomfortable uh both for for me to have and for people to listen to but when i when i read in ephesians where where he talks about um we don't fight against flesh and blood this is this is what i believe it's talking about it's talking about we're we are not fighting against people. It's not about people, but it's about the systems that are in the world that continue to keep people oppressed, that continue to lie to us about our identity, about who we are. Because uh, believing that you're superior is not good for your soul either. No. You may benefit from it. You may benefit here. You know, you may, it may be easier to make wealth. It may be easier to buy a house, whatever. But it, it's destroying your soul. Um, so dismantling all of these systems of oppression in the world, capitalism, white supremacy, uh, decolonizing is exactly what, what the Bible is asking us to do because then we find freedom. Then we find freedom to fully be the image of God that we were created to be in the world. It benefits everyone. It's like uh, dismantling patriarchy. It's not going to harm men. Quite no. the opposite. It's going to allow for them to fully embody the image of God they were created to be without having to put on a front, mm-hmm. without having to believe that they are superior. That's, that, that superiority causes toxic masculinity and it's killing them. Yeah. It's killing men. I so know. we need to do this for the sake of bringing heaven to earth. Yeah. I mean, just to further potentially prove your point, um, I don't know the exact age range, but like white men, white middle-aged men are the highest um, statistically for suicide. And you have to Mm -hmm. wonder why. And I really believe it's because of this trigger term, toxic masculinity. Like saying that there is toxic masculinity, people say, oh, you're attacking manhood. You're attacking what it is to be masculine. It's like, that's not true. We're attacking what is causing people to take their own lives. And that is the pressure of like being the sole provider of their family, being not able to cry and express themselves with people, like all of the things that come with masculinity that actually kills. And I only say that to reiterate that what you're saying is absolutely true. These things cause, if they cause harm to anyone, they cause harm full stop. Harm is harm no matter what. Like 
you know, whoever is perpetuating something that is sinful, quote unquote, is actually in pain themselves. That's the way it always works. Um, And I think it's so beautiful and interesting. You talked to one of your posts about Jesus died so we didn't have to go to hell is something that we're told over and over again. But in reality, you say Jesus died because he stood against systems of oppression. Mm -hmm. And that really struck me because it's true that we are taught these Bible stories from a certain lens. We're told, you know, this is the way it is. And we very rarely just embody that story, step inside of it and actually see what's going on beyond what we're just reading. Right. And, and really it is so clear. Jesus basically rampaged through an entire territory, not telling people you need to be more religious. You need to worship more. You need to pray more. He was battling oppressive systems. He was fighting for the most marginalized people in society and everyone hated him for it. And they hated him so much for being a feminist for being someone that didn't believe in slavery or toxic masculinity or any of these things, mm-hmm. that they killed him. That's right. why they killed him. Then says, this is where I belong. This is where I want to be. This is the people that I want to be associated with. The most marginalized in society. They are my people. The most yeah. powerful, like over and over and over again, Jesus calls the most powerful very harsh names. He's not kind to them. No, he's not he's kind not. to the most powerful. Yeah. Um, but the marginalized, he continues to align himself with them. And by by dying on a cross for the for in the way that he died, for the reasons that he died, he is saying, I am going to die identifying myself with one of the most marginalized people. Which which then, uh, if we are to follow Jesus's lead. How do we identify ourselves with the most marginalized? How are we lending our our platforms, our privilege, so that their voices are amplified, so that we can listen to them, so that we can... Because if we listen to the most marginalized, we will all be okay. If the most marginalized are okay, then the rest of us will be okay. If you help the most marginalized, it's not going to harm anybody. It's just going to make sure that all in society are fine. It's like a ramp on a, on a, on a school. If, you, if there are two kids that need a ramp to be able to get to the school because of a, a lot of stairs, if you set up the ramp, everybody is able to get to school. It's not going to affect those who don't need the ramp. <laughs> and That's it's the an, same yeah. way with aligning yourself with the marginalized. If we align ourselves with the marginalized, then we listen to them. And by listening to them, we ensure that everybody is okay. Nothing is taken from us. How do we like bridge the gap between that truth and the misunderstanding of that? I just don't, I don't understand. And I'm curious what you would think is the base of the fear that someone like that has that doesn't want to give voice, that does want to battle and say, no, we shouldn't have to be attacked for being white, et cetera. What is their disconnect? I really believe it's trauma. Um, because we live in a capitalistic society, all of us have experienced the trauma of capitalism and we have been experiencing the trauma of capitalism essentially since the, since, you know, the industrial revolution, uh, when people started being used to produce more wealth, uh, and when people started looking like commodities now to Mm. be able to accrue more wealth and hoard more wealth, that's traumatizing in, in, in different levels and subconscious levels that we can't even comprehend. So when you go through that and then you go through, 
horrible, brutal wars, which is what we saw all in the 20th century, just these brutal wars that, that are the reality for many still today, brutal wars, your um, subconscious starts telling you, hoard as much as you can, because you don't know when these, the tables are going to turn. Mm-hmm. Hoard and hoard and grab onto everything. So we are a whole bunch of people living with a lot of trauma, a lot of generational trauma. Uh, and because of this generational trauma, we are perpetuating trauma ourselves onto others. Because we think that if, if I lose something, we, we believe that there is a scarcity. Because, you know, that's a lie of capitalism, believing that there is a scarcity, believing that there is not enough for everyone to thrive and to do amazing. That if I am the most talented painter, then the next painter is just not going to have... Um, people to buy their paintings when in reality we, we all can thrive we all if God created us all unique and in the image of God therefore there is a space and there is abundance for all of us to be able to fulfill the purpose for which we were created um, but we cannot align ourselves with abundance mentality we cannot even comprehend abundance mentality because all of us have been deeply traumatized by capitalism deeply traumatized by wars you know and, and I didn't experience a war I'm in my 30s but my ancestors did and my ancestors passed down generational trauma because they not only do that do you do that at the cellular level like at cellular level you're passing down trauma but also the way that they raise you communicates this trauma to you hey don't, don't do that don't do that as soon as you have something grab onto it don't share and, and maybe they don't use those exact words but the the idea is being communicated, you know, the idea is being communicated all the time. So that's why I believe that so long as we are not decolonizing, um, decolonizing our faith, and and I'm not even talking about Christianity. I'm talking about decolonizing faith, decolonizing our belief about God, our belief about ourselves, our belief about abundance, our belief about the, the, the universe. So long as we don't decolonize, we will continue to be puppets of the systems of oppression in the world. And they will continue to be traumatizing for us and we will continue to uphold them subconsciously. So that's why the work of decolonizing is paramount because we won't find true, complete freedom until we decolonize. And, and when I talk about decolonizing, I'm talking about doing, doing deep generational trauma work too. Um, so of course that it, it's, it's a trigger for you if I say share, you know, yeah. for all of us. Because share meant that some of our ancestors lost everything. Well, and beyond ancestors, it's like the 2008 stock market crash. And um, what's his face that uh, swindled everybody out of all their stocks uh, in New York? (laughs) I can't remember his name off the bat. But um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of extraordinarily wealthy people have gone from living in literal glass houses on the top of mountains and hills to having absolutely nothing on their bank account because money obviously is not something that you can hang your hat on and it does ebb and flow and it can disappear in an instant if that's what you're standing on, no matter how much you hoard, no matter how much you protect it. So I would even say that I, you know, have faced those traumas as well. And you know, my partner at one time, I was talking about how I've had a lot of loss in my life. Like I had a house fire and, you know, I've had 
money stolen from me in different ways and everything. And he was like, why are you counting them as loss? He's like, that's a really weird perspective to have, especially coming from a faith-based mm. person. He was like, those are experiences in your life. Those are opportunities for growth. Those are things that you know, had occurred. And also a lot of them were because of your own poor choices, how much you relied on these material things to bring you X, Y, or Z. Um, So I definitely do think the people that, uh, you know, indoctrinate people with prosperity gospel that are flying around in these private jets and hoarding all of their wealth from, you know, their Christian parishioners, the same thing. I, that I just relate to what you're saying. It's like, the, these traumas are real. People suffer that loss because they are focused and relying on the wrong thing, this tangible thing that Jesus says is going to wash away and be meaningless anyway. Right. And I think about that when, when I read Jesus talking about, you know, it is, it's, it's easier for a man to walk through the eye of a, of a needle. Um, well, we're talking about privilege there. He wasn't talking about just people that are wealthy per se, um, you know, because it's like, oh, he was talking about the very uber wealthy. No, he wasn't. He was talking about how much privilege do you hold and how tightly are you holding onto that privilege that if you were to lose it, your identity would go with it. Mm. Yeah. And that's the thing. If our identity is hinging on anything that is not just us. I, I love when, when Moses is talking to God and says, "Who? what is your name? And he says, I am. Mm. Or she says, I am they say I am uh and and Jesus repeats that you know who are I am says I am I am and then he has all of these I am statements all throughout the gospels and I believe that's the that's the answer of our identity I don't I don't like when people say who you who who are you I'm a child of God okay um that means nothing really it means nothing and it means everything but it's not specific but we have to get to a place where we say I am I I am you know, I exist. I am. My identity doesn't hinge on anything, depend on anything. I am. I am. I just absolutely am. That's gorgeous. And I love once that. Once we are able to, to realize when we are not, me too, because once we're able to not, because you can recognize when your identity is hinging on something else and then you yeah. can stop, pause, which is what I call prayer now and say, what, what is my, the subconscious belief here? that I'm partnering with, that I am putting my identity on. Because nothing can, nobody and nothing can steal from me the reality of me being I am, you know, mm. just existing and being right now and right here. And the moment that that starts slipping away from me is the moment that I'm partnering with a lie. I love uh, that, yeah. And we need to be able to, and that, that's, the, that's the decolonizing work. Uh, I think of indigenous people existing, just absolutely existing. Yeah. And that was it. They existed beautifully. I know. I know. I mean, there's no surprise to me. Like when you say it's not um, people, but powers and principalities that we battle against. To me, it is so clearly, you know, whatever word you want to ascribe to it, but so clearly demonic, evil, dark energy that the Europeans stumbled upon something that was so much closer to true worship than we Mm -hmm. actually have today. You know, the way that they cultivated everything from their land to their relationships and to their presence to, like you said, the, just the stillness of being so often Mm -hmm. God is telling us to just be still and know that I am, like you said. And 
you're right. When you stop identifying with anything else except the present, which C.S. Lewis says beautifully in Screwtape Letters, is the only place where the Holy Spirit resides anyway, because the past is just your memory. The future exists even less because it doesn't even, it's not even here yet. It's just like projections of what you fear or what mm-hmm. you hope will happen. The Holy Spirit is here now, and that's all you have. Right. And in that case, it's true. You're not white, black, you're not rich, poor, you're not any of these things. You're just, you just you are. are. Yeah, right? I love that. And you made me think when you were talking about loss, you made me think even in that, in that, in that same line of thought, um, I was talking to a friend right now. She's, um, she's single, but wants to be married. And um, she dated someone and it just didn't work out. And she was like, I just feel like I lost, you know? Uh, and I was thinking, but we we were told to view relationships that way. If mm-hmm. We were told to view things a certain way. But there is no loss in love. N- nobody loses by having a relationship where you grow and you learn and you become a better version of yourself, where you learn about yourself and about another human being. There is o- the, the success has to be redefined. You know, success has to be redefined as I am evolving. Mm. so long as there is evolution here so long as as myself is evolving totally i there is success Mm -hmm. there it wasn't it wasn't bad there is success now does it diminish pain no of course and we grieve and we 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 hurt and all of that is valid but the grief is not loss the grief is also gain because we grow and we learn and we go deeper within our souls so I think that we just have to redefine all these things that we were told were success and were good and were, um, you know, even even redefining pain as bad. Pain is good. It leads us. Absolutely. Some people might get their panties in a bunch that I refer to a secular gay uh, a sex expert on this. But Dan Savage says something I love, which is that you don't have a failed marriage or a failed relationship you had a successful 20 year marriage that is no longer, you know, you had a successful two month, you know, fling with somebody that is no longer, you know, we often do, like you said, speak in so much failure and success, that dichotomy when it's like neither exists. And the proof of that even is that I live in Los Angeles I am around some of the wealthiest, most successful people you could possibly know. And are they more joyful than anyone else that I know? No. I mean, half the time they're more depressed and miserable because sometimes I think if you get to that mountaintop where you think all this joy exists, it's even more depressing because you're like, wait, there's nothing up here. Why did I come all the way up here? Right. Um, so yeah, that's just like- And that, 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 what you just said is what happened to me in Christianity. Oh, do I did, I did all the things, mm-hmm. everything, you know, I, I read all the times that they told me to read. I woke up at 530 in the morning for years. I journaled. I learned Hebrew. I did all the things, Ser- like served at a church. I became a pastor. I worked my butt off. I did all the things. And there I was still empty handed. I still miserable, still wow. broken hearted. Because I was using Christianity as a coping mechanism for my traumas instead of healing and seeing how faith actually helps me heal. So I started asking more and more questions like, where does it say in the Bible that the Bible is the actual word of God? And, and then they couldn't answer me. And I started studying Genesis and uh, finding out that 
there is nowhere in the Bible that says that Muslims are bad people that we shouldn't associate with. Right. Uh, quite the opposite, actually. So mm -hmm. my husband and I ended up in Turkey meeting a lot of Muslims. We spent there uh, quite a few weeks and uh, Muslims were the most loving and they embraced us and loved us. And I was feeling brotherly love from Muslims and at the same time being demonized by Christians. Mm. And this destroys your faith quick. Yeah. Wow. And in that process, I started also um, asking more questions about all these beliefs and realizing how many of these beliefs demonized my ancestors and why were they true? And that's where my decolonizing work started. You know, I started actually doing anti-racist um, education because I just wanted to be a better human. Uh, and the anti-racist education led to decolonizing work. And, and it just kind of snowballed from there. What are some of like the things that you had internalized as a non-white person, you know, in evangelicalism? Uh, well, the, there is obviously the standards of beauty. Um, and that, that's for all of us. You know, it, 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 it is not coincidental that they paint Jesus white. Oh, uh, yeah. There is a reason for that. Uh, yeah. Because if, if you can identify with the ideals of beauty, then it's easier for you to believe that you're closer to God. You know what wow. I mean? Yeah. I look alike. I look like him, but I, I'll never look like that. It's just, there's nothing I can do about it. Um, so ideals of beauty, and it goes beyond uh, body positivity. It goes beyond, it goes beyond all of that. It is, it is self-esteem, you know? I mean, it's truly, truly, truly mind-blowing that he is painted white. When it we is. know, we know damn well exactly where he was and exactly where he came from. Sadly, though, many people are convinced that he was white. Wait, are you telling me that people actually are saying that he was born in Jerusalem, but that he was white? Because yeah, there are people that believe that. Why? Much so. Based in what? Because we're superior and yeah. you just have to believe it. Yeah, there are people that believe that. There are people that have told me like, but Jesus was white. Nope. There is no, <sighs> nope. That's... Absolutely not. Okay, let's just put that insanity aside. I hope that's only like five people because that's the craziest so too, thing but... I've ever heard. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, standards of beauty, standards of behavior too, mm -hmm. um, to, which is, this is so very harmful for children. You know, well-behaved children are godly children and well-behaved children that are godly children are the obvious result of godly parents. Yeah. That is terribly harmful, terribly, terribly harmful. And that again goes for, for all of us, except the way that white people behave is what's considered good behavior. In what way? Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but, uh, well, you probably haven't noticed. So I'll, I'll I go, probably, I'll, like, I'll I'll probably haven't noticed. Yeah, yeah, I'll back up. I'll back up even more. So um, indigenous and um, children that were children of enslaved people were hurt really badly. Um, by either the colonizers or by the slave owners if they didn't behave perfectly like the colonizers expected them to behave. So both indigenous and um, enslaved people became really, really um, strict parents. So enslaved people would beat their children to save their lives. If you don't behave, the slave owner is going to murder you. So you have to listen to me and do what I tell you to do. So we have, you know, you, you've seen how black moms and how Latino moms are portrayed all over. And, and there is this, this strict, but white kids behave differently and it's allowed and it's permitted. Um, 
and that comes from all this history, you know, of, of abuse and of lying about what are the expectations of people of behavior. Because when white kids misbehave, it is just like, oh, they are children. But when people of color's children misbehave, it's, hmm, it's because they are not godly in an in a even more deep way than white people experience it too. Um, so, and this obviously has, it, it comes from the trauma generational that we've carried with us. I mean, yeah, I, again, I would have, I always have noticed that, like you said, but I would have never interpreted it in that way. But I'm drawn back to a, a comedy show that me and my boyfriend go see every once in a while. One of his friends is, um, Korean and she talks about how incredibly strict her mom is and I've talked to a lot of people like you said of different colors especially like Korean parents um, black parents I've heard Mexican parents where a couple things one them not being permitted to speak their native language at home or outside of the home for fear that they will be you know, the crimes will be perpetuated against them, that they'll experience racism, or they will be disadvantaged in their community because they're not speaking the right language. And, um, and also just that like incredible strictness, like um, I have a Korean friend, you know, just like study really hard, you have to like, you have to work so much harder and be so much better and be so much more perfect to just line up and plateau just at the same level as their white peers. Yeah. Which happens also with men and women, you know, yeah. women work that much harder for the same jobs that men apply to mm -hmm. uh, because there is disadvantages and, and that's just, just the way that it is. And it's funny to me when people say like, you're just playing the victim. I'm like, no, I'm just pointing out facts. Um, yeah. And, and it's, I'm not, I'm not a victim of it. I'm, I'm working, I'm doing my thing, but these are facts that we need to acknowledge and, and they exist. Mm -hmm. um, but all of these things affect people of color in a different way. And then there's always like purity. Purity is associated with whiteness. Um, white women are seen as pure. Yeah. Well, women of color are sexual yeah. and they are sexualized in a different way at different levels. Um, and therefore hips or our body types are sexualized in different ways too. But whiteness is seen as more pure than mm -hmm non-whiteness so we have to deal with uh, and if you put all of these in subconscious children's minds uh the way that is interpreted is really dangerous and and damaging yeah absolutely i don't know the reference for this but i know that there was some study done where they had a black doll and a white doll and they brought it to children of all races and asked which one was good and which one was bad mm -hmm. and almost i think 100 percent of the children said the black doll was bad and the white one was good yeah, yeah, because these the children start. Harvard did a study on when children start showing biases, racial biases. Um, it around three years old, they start showing racial biases. So, um, if you think that you should wait until your kids are teenagers to talk about race, you waited too long. Yeah, um, it's the same. To, to, you can't wait to talk about sex. You know? Yeah, you, you don't wait to conversations. Talk about <laughs> exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but age appropriate conversation. For absolutely. Who got their panties in a bunch over that age. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, kids start showing um, racial biases around three years old, mm -hmm. and they start preferring whiteness around five, between three and five years old. Um, and children of color show biases earlier than white children. This was all a Harvard study, wow. uh, which is really interesting and makes sense because we experience the backlash of it more than white kids do. Right. So it's, it's just absolute unawareness. And my husband is from Washington state 
a small town at the border of Canada and the States. And I went to visit and he took me to this fair, um, you know, like a, like a, a fair, a country fair. Mm-hmm. And I, I walk into this fair oh and God, I am the <laughs> only person of color, the only person of color. And I just looked at him and I said, Hey, there is no people of color. And he said, I, it had never occurred to me. I was like, I bet, <laughs> you know, cause it doesn't, I yeah. felt it. It's, it's almost a physical, like I feel the physical stares. I feel, I feel it. Um, and it actually, it was funny cause now he pays attention to those things he knows. So we were invited to this, uh, pastor's prayer brunch and it was a lot of pastors. We walk into this room and I am the only woman and the only person of color. That's not true. There were like two Asian pastors. Uh, everybody else was white and everybody else was male. And I just, I, we walk in and he just looks at me and he's like, you okay? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but he notices now because I made him aware he wasn't bad before. He just, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what other people experience. Um, so now he can see and he can experience that. And I think that white Christians, whether progressive or evangelicals, evangelicals are just unwilling to, uh, need to be able to listen to their brothers and sisters of color. It's important. And, and all of us need to listen to our brothers and sisters from the LGBTQ community. And all of us need to listen to our disabled brothers and sisters. And, and we need to just continue to find the intersections of marginalization so that we can decolonize together. Because we don't decolonize, we decolonize ourselves, but we cannot fully decolonize alone. That's yeah. where community becomes so important. That's where listening to the other becomes so important because we colonize, we decolonize together and we reimagine the world and um, start retelling these stories about ourselves and about each other together. Yeah. I would like to ask for two recommendations. Like one, I would love to know what you think is the best pathway for a person that is either aware or not that they're ignorant or they find a post that triggers them in some way. Like you did have an Instagram post that said, progressive Christians, your white supremacy is showing. And I had like a tinge of like, what is that? Because I (laughs) identify as a progressive Christian. And I was just like, wait, no, progressives are on the forefront of like trying to understand and empathize with people, you know? But at the end of the day, it's like, (laughs) sorry, that triggered you, Brenda. Like it's, if it's true, it's true. But anyway, when someone feels assaulted or offended by something like that, like how would you recommend that they process that and what is their best pathway forward? Um, and then the, the second part of that is like, what if the response to that is someone getting really angry at them or, or like accusing them of tokenism or accusing them of asking inappropriate questions, you know, and yeah. then how do they process then the follow-up being maybe something that further traumatizes them or further pushes them away? Because yeah. I only ask that because I feel like there's a lot of people rightfully so that are resenting the fact that they this like need to educate people is being imposed on them because white people are suddenly asking these invasive questions that they've never asked before and not everybody wants to respond and no one has to i'm not putting that onus on anyone of color yeah. but you know i'm just saying if you're a person who wants to be educated but then you're met with something that maybe triggers you further it's like how do you just keep plugging forward to be like, I don't care how I feel about this. I'm going to keep moving forward. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the, the most important thing for me about this work uh, and the thing that has helped me the most 
was um, learning about the backfire effect. And I'll explain the backfire effect for anybody that has not heard about it. But essentially, the backfire effect teaches us that when we are met with uh, an opposing view, when we are met with something that triggers us, essentially, with, when we are challenged in a belief that we've held deeply within us, that is part of our identity, uh, and it's uncomfortable, we, our body, our brain reacts in the exact same way that we react when a bear is attacking us. Mm. So we go into fight and flight mode. Uh, and what happens in fight and flight mode is that our sympathetic nervous system is, gets complete, it starts working harder. And our sympathetic nervous system is, a sympath- is the system that stops our body from digesting, it stops from the slowing down, from the being able to think properly. It, uh, it affects our hypo- hypothalamus and prefrontal, prefrontal cortex. So we cannot think properly anymore because we need to run, right? There is a bear. We need to mm-hmm. run. We need to move. Um, so now, if we know that, what do we do to be able to stop our brain from doing that? First, we know that that's where we're at, recognizing like, oof, I'm being triggered, which means my sympathetic nervous system is to my parasympathetic nervous system. Parasympathetic nervous system is a system that goes when we are digesting food, when we are thinking clearly, when we are able to just sit and breathe and relax. Um, the, the, the way to change gears between those two is essentially to breathe and meditate. It takes 90 seconds for an emotion to go through your body. Therefore, if you, are able, if you feel triggered, the worst thing that you can do, and this, is good, this was good for me to learn for my marriage and for my relationship with my children. <laughs> or text messaging your boyfriend. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's, it's just good information to have. Uh, I just, I distance myself. I sit down. That's when, you know, you, you hear people saying like, it's, you need to sit down. That's what mm. it means. You need to sit down. You need to sit yeah. down. You need to breathe. And you need to just put this away for a minute. You know, take, take a, take, go take a walk, drink some coffee, um, and then come back to it, being able to think properly. Your brain is not even letting you process this information. It's not even mm. about you anymore. Like, you are in defense mode. Your brain is not letting you connect dots anymore. You're just trying to defend your identity, which is actually not being attacked at all. That's just what your brain is telling you. Mm. So um, when I would feel like, when, because I still feel it. Sometimes I read things and I'm like, mm. I just, I pause. It's time to pause and sit down. And when something makes me really uncomfortable and I'm like, ah, I don't know that I believe that. I don't know that that's necessarily true. Uh, it, it's actually for me an invitation to dig in and like to deep deeper, but I do it quietly and I do it on this end. It's, it's my work. It's not anybody else's work to do. Mm. So I sit and I look, um, I start reading and I start researching this thing. Uh, and I, and if I, if I get to a place where I'm like, I absolutely cannot find a resolution here and I need help. I find somebody that can help me and I usually pay them for their time. Uh, especially if it's a person more marginalized than me. You know, if I'm trying to understand about fat phobia, um, I don't ask a woman that is fat to give me answers and to explain things to me without paying her for her labor. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't demand that work of her either. If she wants to give it to me, wonderful. Uh, but first I'm going to pay her. And second, I'm going to recognize that she's, she's doing work for me, emotional work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't do this before having done all the research that I could and coming at the table, having, having said like, Hey, I, I am interested really, truly. And I want to do the work myself too. 
Uh, and I recognize that she might say things that are going to make me feel bad. And she might say things that are going to make me, that are going to hurt me. And that is valid and it's okay. It's okay to feel bad uh, because it's hard to come face to face with the oppressor in you. Yeah. But if mm -hmm. we cannot recognize the oppressor in you, we continue to be it. So we just have to like come face to face, be gentle with myself and say, wow, I was an oppressor in that circumstance. And uh, I, I know better now. So I do better now. But yeah. I think that the, it's important to understand those things to take time. And I, and when it comes to me personally, um, people sometimes ask me questions, which is really funny. Don't go into people's DMs demanding, like say hi, at least for the love of God. <laughs> um, I get a lot of that. Like, what do you mean by that? Hi, <laughs> nice to meet you. Um, so I don't mind answering questions. I'm happy to really, because I, I believe in this work and I believe that we have to move toward liberation together. Um, but sometimes I do have to set boundaries, you know, and I, yeah. I posted that way and I said, this is just a boundary that I'm setting. I don't have to give you answers. Um, that's why I made lists of resources that everybody has access to. This is not, you know, a lot of this work is my work, but also it's work that has been um, informed by a lot of people. And I give you all of those resources so yeah. you can just go ahead and, and check them out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think those, those things, just pausing, taking some time, and doing your own work. This is yeah. your work. <laughs> I think that um, I will not say the ways that I've grown because they're humiliating and terrible. You know, the things that I've said in the past or the beliefs that I've Safe. held and it's humiliating. And some of it is in writing, you know, in like the first version of my memoir that I wrote, you know, there's certain things that I'm like, Oh my God, like yeah. I really saw the world through that lens. It's that's mortifying. Um, but that said, I understand it's like the, you talking about, you're going to, you might get hurt. It's like, that's true. Like when you know, you're a quote, well-meaning person, you're a good hearted person, your question comes from a good place that you were just trying to learn. It can be hurtful if someone comes back in, in an attacking manner. And like you said, you just have to realize that it's not their responsibility. And if, even if they do educate you, they're doing a job and they're doing emotional labor. And you can't expect them to be in a beautiful emotional place where they're completely ready to hear your dumb questions because marginalized people have already been through so much. And, and some of these questions are microaggressions. So they hurt. Of like, what do you mean? So some of the, depending on how you ask the question, the question can be like, if you ask me, well, why is it like with the whole thing about progressive Christians, when their white supremacy was showing, this was about the, the halftime show and the two Latina women are dancing. Sure. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. a lot of progressive Christians, a lot of progressive Christians were telling me that it was inappropriate. And I'm telling them like, you don't understand. This is my culture. And they're like, but how could you not think that it is inappropriate to shake your butt? Okay. You're telling me I'm inappropriate. You're telling me my culture is inappropriate. And it, it's, it, I don't want to hear it. Like I don't, it was exhausting, honestly. It was mm -hmm. exhausting all the questions that I was getting and all the accusations because they sound like accusations. Your culture, your people, the way that you do things is inappropriate. Right. Uh, and so also understanding that some of the questions are going to be microaggressions, you know, some of the things that are said are going to be microaggressions that to you don't sound like they are hurtful, mm -hmm. sound like they are mean, but they are. Sometimes people are even trying to give me a compliment 
and it's it's a microaggression <laughs> like so, oh god like what <laughs> uh, we do it we do it all the time i did it to yeah to one of my black friends too I, I said something to her and i meant it as a compliment this was when i first moved to america i said to her you don't talk like a black woman oh and she goes yeah. what do you mean by that mm. and i had to sit with like yeah what do i mean by that and that was embarrassing and i had to learn and i said you know what i'm so i'm so sorry yeah i guess i have preconceived notions about what's what black women talk like and and how it's and which okay is to talk superior. that way and which is exactly yeah and um so for instance i uh i get to, i get told a lot i'm articulate oh. you're so articulate you're oh. so articulate you're oh. so articulate but i'm a foreigner english is not my first language um I, I am an educated woman yeah um articulate is not what i want to hear like mm -hmm. articulate sounds you know it just it comes off as a microaggression uh and i was like a backhanded compliment exactly Another, yeah and and they mean it as a compliment i understand that but now because i am in a different place i i tell them like thank you so much i understand that you mean that as a compliment but it comes off as a microaggression because when was the last time that you described a male white pastor's sermon as articulate <laughs> yeah never that doesn't yeah no one never. would say that Mm -mm. they are inarticulate because it, it, it's expected that they are articulate but with me it's more like you're so it's you're so articulate like it's shocking um so those things and i actually just recently somebody interviewed me for a podcast and he said it twice and i was like okay and then when he posted it on his twitter he said it again so i messaged him and i said listen i usually I just let it go sometimes but but you said it three times <laughs> and yeah. i feel like you know, you can take it as you, as you wish. I understand your intention was good. Uh, and that's because I'm nice. Nobody owes you niceness either. Yeah. I mean, you are, that's very generous of you. Yeah. So I told him and he came back to me and I always brace myself for a really fragile, like for fragility, but he was very, very, very receptive. He was like, absolutely. I don't even know what I was thinking. Like, well, who wants to be told that you're articulate? I'm like, I know. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's those, it's those, those little things. So depending on what you're saying and how you're saying it, recognizing that you may have good intentions, but your impact is what matters, not your intention. That's beautiful. That's beautifully said. Your impact is important, not your intention. Mm -hmm. Because I know that it could hurt when you don't realize that you're, if you know internally you're coming from a good place, but then it's still ill-received, that like defensiveness coming at you would just reiterate to a lot of people, oh, I am a bad person. You're saying that I am bad. You're saying that I was coming from a bad place. And it's like, no, no one's saying that. It's just that the impact that you had, unfortunately, was negative. And you yeah. have to recalibrate the way you approach it. And it's a great place. Like if you feel that defensiveness, it's a great place to recognize there is some um, insecurities that you have to deal with. Right. Because mm -hmm. it's, it's an insecurity to think, oh, you're all thinking that I'm bad. No, nobody's thinking that. You just your impact was just not what you wanted. And that's normal. That happens. You just correct course, apologize and, um, you know, move forward. Yeah. I love it. Um, any final thoughts? No, thank you so much. Thank you for, um, your willingness to admit the hard conversations to have, mm -hmm. uh, your willingness to your own privilege and, that's important. We all have to do that. Um, so thank you. Thank you for having the conversation, for inviting me to it um, and for being so just humble and honest about it. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I have to be, we all have to be. And I <laughs> thank you so much for 
allowing <laughs> ignorant questions and for educating me on this subject. And I really cannot wait to dive into this more because historically there's just so much fascinating stuff to unpack. Yeah. You know, like everything about colonization and the way it's been presented. And, and like you said, you know, I talk about purity culture a ton. Um, I really want to talk to uh, like a black woman about how purity culture impacted her because I know it's completely different because of colonization. Like you said, like shaking your ass in a specific way um, on a specific continent at a specific time was actually a celebration and a spiritual celebration and something beautiful. And like even a celebration of fertility in certain ceremonies, whatever, like that kind of dancing and exuberance to me is so spirit led and beautiful, but it is because of colonization that we think it's purely sexual and it's a sexual dance and it's done to tantalize men and it has ill motivations. And it's like, again, if you unpack this history and look at things historically, you would see that is not where that comes from or not what that was ever intended to be. Mm -hmm. So there's just so many different facets to this. Yeah. And um, anyone that's listening, if you would like for us to maybe revisit a conversation in the future, that could be amazing because I feel like we could get more specific with this, um, just the history of it, maybe go through a whole session of what you've learned and educate us even more because, yeah, that would be really wonderful. But um, in the meantime, how can people reach you, follow you on socials, et cetera? They can find me on Instagram is where I'm the most active. Um, So I use my Instagram account as a teaching tool and as a church, (laughs) I call it a church. So um, I have stories and I have things there, but I also have, uh, I also am active on Twitter and I have a YouTube that I have neglected a little bit, but I'll go back to it. (laughs) Um, It's a lot of work. So props to you. It's it's so much work. (laughs) A lot of work. Yes, it is a lot of work. Um, And then I also have a Patreon account that just, just recently started where we kind of dive a little bit more into these things and we have some monthly Q&As where we can talk about just all of these things in in kind of deeper. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. So everybody go follow, check out Joe Lumen. Um, like I said, I really love everything on our page and I would love for you to dive into her Instagram post because she really beautifully articulates deconstruction (laughs) that's perfect yes (laughs) um no but really you really laid out at like point by point a really beautiful understanding of exactly how I feel so you will feel resonant with this page if you're deconstructing or if you're going through reconstruction whatever and um that's it we love love you all all. god God bless. bless